CTV's W5 with Avery Haynes. Athletes from yet another sport are blowing the whistle on abuse. This time it's gymnasts who are coming forward with allegations of toxic, destructive, and at times terrifying behavior from their coaches. In a partnership with W5 and Crave, TSN's Rick Westhead investigates the disturbing culture at the core of the sport. I've been working on my victim impact statement for almost five years now. I always pictured myself saying this, standing in court. I was silenced for five years. And so now I get to take control of my own voice and it feels powerful. Mel Hunt began competitive gymnastics when she was eight. She trained at Blue Water Gymnastics in Sarnia, Ontario, three hours west of Toronto. If you look back at old videos, it's pretty funny. I kind of just look awkward and gangly. <laughs> I wasn't really a strong tumbler. To us, it was like just perfectly fun. That was actually the nicest time that I remember in gymnastics because I remember seeing all the kids smile and laugh and nobody cared. That's my favorite picture. That's when gymnastics was real. After that, when I started training 25 hours a week, I kind of just excelled. Her dad, Rob Rocca, was always in awe of her focus and determination. It didn't matter if it was a cartwheel or if it was doing homework. She was always had to be perfect, and she did everything over and over and over. She just wouldn't stop until it was the way she thought was good. Did you see that? Yeah. That was the last time I saw that smile in gymnastics. Mel was determined to be a great gymnast and put her fate in the hands of her demanding head coach, Dave Brubaker, who had been running the gym for a decade. There was very much a, whatever Dave says is what I need to do and all the older girls in the change room kind of taught us what we needed to know. Like, you know, don't get caught eating junk food. Try not to cry. I wanted to please Dave, and so that's what I set out to do. Mel was determined to be a great gymnast, but she was also under Brubaker's spell. I remember my dad asked Dave to see his hands. And Dave was like, okay, and showed him. And he's like, why? And my dad said, oh, I want to see the holes in your hand. My daughter thinks you're God. He told me one day that he had to brainwash these kids. He had to make them believe that he was like an almighty in order for them to trust him. He would say, well, when I'm asking the girl to, to turn on the bar and let go of the bar and flip twice, She's got to trust me that I'm going to be there. Hey, Dave. Mr. Brubaker. Dave was in France, and I was home because I was still really young. And he called home to talk. And I remember that's the first time he ever said, I love you, on the phone. It kind of shocked me. I remember that something didn't feel right. And I went with it anyways, because I thought it was the polite thing to do. 
It's a grooming process. It's this gradual indoctrination. And really what the perpetrator is doing is trying to climatize you to this. Once the athlete is used to these little indiscretions, they go to the next step and then the next step. And then you find yourself in a position that you, can't, you don't even understand how you got there. At Blue Water, Brubaker was club director and had full control of the competitive program. He had the freedom to coach as he pleased. Everybody knew. You're there to do a job. You're a little soldier. That's the best way to describe it. Abby Spatafora is four years older than Melanie. She started gymnastics at Blue Water when she was two. At seven, she joined the competitive program under Brubaker. It didn't come natural to me. It was very hard. There was always somebody in the gym that was way more talented. Another kid might get it, let's say, in a month. I was the kid that would take six months to get a skill, and. I just worked. Like Mel, Abby was eager to succeed and eager to please Brubaker. She was also eager to avoid punishment, which she felt always seemed to be right around the corner if she wasn't careful. I was petrified of him. I loved the sport, but I was petrified when I was in there. He says, jump, you say, how high? Looking back, it was fear. Abby. I was about 11 years old, and um, I was doing swing half turns on the bars. So it's like where you swing, then you do half turn, swing, half turn. And my hands kind of kept sliding over the bar a little bit, and he kept telling me, fix it, fix it. He got so mad at me, he tells me to get up on the bar, so I get up in my cast position, and he, he puts me into handstand, and he's holding my leg, and he screams, this is what's going to happen to you if you don't fix your hands pushes my hands off the bar, lets go of my leg, and I go crashing down onto my head. I never told my parents about it. They didn't know anything. What happens in the gym stays in the gym. Despite the environment at Blue Water, as the years went by, Mel and Abby were having success in competition. In 1996, at age 13, Abby was a junior national champion, and Mel hoped to follow in her footsteps. Four years later, when Brubaker and his wife Liz took new jobs at a gym in Burlington, Ontario, two hours east of Sarnia, they invited the two girls to come and train with them. Both girls said yes. For Abby, it wasn't even a question. She was nearly 17 and just weeks away from Olympic trials. For Mel, who was only 12, the decision wasn't hers to make. At the time, I was on the national team, and so was Abby. And I was like, I really want to go to the Olympics. I said, there's other coaches. But she believed that he was the only one that could take her to that extreme, to that level. Rob was hesitant to let his daughter go until Brubaker convinced him it was Mel's only path to the Olympics. If she doesn't get that, then I was killing her dream. Parents are in a very precarious situation. They get folded into this pathological relationship and they want their child to achieve. And the coach has them believing that they're responsible for their trajectory. So they can't win. By July of 2000, both Mel and Abby had moved to Burlington. Mel was living with the Brubakers immediately. Abby joined her months later. 
They say the inappropriate behavior escalated almost right away. We got back from a competition in Europe, and it's very common there to do like the kiss on either cheek. And so every time we'd say hello and goodbye, we would do this kiss. Dave Brubaker, coach of Melanie Rocha. He said, you have to kiss Liz and I when you enter the gym and when you leave the gym because we have, you have to show the other girls that they have to respect you. That's how it started, and it literally became kissing them when I woke up, kissing them when I entered the gym. I had to kiss them when I left the gym, when they dropped me off at school, when they picked me up at school. I had to kiss them when I entered the gym again, and when I left the gym again at night, and then I'd have to kiss them when I went to bed. Like, I literally was kissing them more than their kids were kissing them, more than I ever kissed my parents. One afternoon practice, Dave said, well, how come your dad is so lucky that he gets a kiss on the lips? And so I knew that what he wanted was for me to do the same with him. And that's how it started. And until I was finished gym, that's what we did. Dave and Liz always were like your, your second parents. But the way that Dave always touched me never felt the way that like my dad would touch me. It never felt like a fatherly touch. It's always like a skin crawl or a spider crawling on you. Kissing was just one of the bizarre tools in the Brubaker coaching routine. There were other, more brutal methods. I was on vault and I was learning a new move. For some reason, I couldn't, I couldn't make it work in my mind. And Dave barged down the runway towards me, grabbed me, dragged me, turned me over onto the beat board, then flipped me over the vault and kind of pushed me over. I was trying not to cry, and I was also extremely scared because he, I'd never seen him that mad before. The incident was so shocking that a witness called Children's Aid. But even though Mel was the victim, her greatest concern was for Brubaker. And I remember lying because I didn't want Dave and Liz to get in trouble. I just played it off like it was a misunderstanding and, you know, it was fine. Everything was fine. Because the relationship between an athlete and an abusive coach is so distorted and so problematic, you will see athletes protecting their abuser. The coach does throw them some praise once in a while, does show a better side to them. So it keeps them coming back and it keeps them protecting individuals who do not deserve to be protected. It was uh, a Tuesday night. I was sitting on the couch and um, Dave came in sat beside me, not a big deal, and he put his arm around me. And then he like, um, he pulled me down onto the couch and he was spooning me. He had his hand under my shirt and I go to get up and he goes, I want to touch you. And I just froze. And I get up and then I go to say goodnight, like I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to kiss him goodnight. And he completely ignores me and I walked downstairs. I didn't want to wake Mel up, so I sat on the couch outside her room and bawled my eyes out thinking, what did I do? What did I do wrong? Should I have let him touch me and that's why he's mad at me? 
hit me, scream at me, do something, don't ignore me. It was the worst feeling. Like I thought I thought it was my fault that this happened. I'm just coming to terms with it. Sorry. I just thank God I got up. Coming up. Physical and psychological abuse have become normalized. Young gymnasts, terrorized, exhausted, and alone. They did nothing. When W5 continues. Ernestine Russell was Canada's first famous female gymnast, competing at the 1956 and 1960 Olympics. She didn't medal, but is credited with raising the profile of the sport at home. Gymnasts in the 60s looked like women, and they were women of age. Some of them had already had children, in fact. Then we had Nadia Komenich, who had skills that no one had ever seen. The Western world saw the success that the Soviet gymnasts were having and imported a lot of those coaches to start replicating what had worked for them. But what also came with that was achieve results at all costs. It leaves damaged children and young adults in its wake. Your splits. My splits, not. Let's look at this one. This is back. Oh, this must be nationals. Nationals. It's a very authoritarian type of sport. So there's your bar routine. Yep. Your height is incredible there. Right. We were all so little. I was just in awe and uh, a very, very proud dad. Those years are just a blur of pain and misery. Yeah, what's not seen in the photos is, you know, the, the moments of stress and anger and things that didn't go well. Emotionally and physically abusive, without a doubt. From 1999 to 2003, Amelia Klein trained at Omega Gymnastics in Coquitlam, BC, just outside Vancouver. Good for you, Amelia. Home to one of the more competitive programs in the country. But that competitiveness came at a cost to the young athletes who trained there. At the time, it was one of the more elite gyms in a, an old warehouse, all set up with all the latest equipment, state of the art at the time. Felt very fancy. In an effort to support Amelia, her dad Roy took on a major role at the gym. I was club president, and all the parents say, we need an elite coach. So I phoned Gymnastics Canada and talked to the head coach for, for Canada, and he said, I have the right person for you. His name's Vladimir Lashin. Vladimir Lashin and his wife Svetlana have been coaching gymnastics since the 1990s. The couple is originally from Eastern Europe, and Vladimir in particular had a reputation for an old-school, unforgiving approach with what he called my gymnasts. There was rumors swirling that they were really strict, but these are coaches that will 
get them to the Olympics was sort of the, the promise that was made. Cassidy Jones showed great talent from a young age. By the time she was five years old, she was already training at Omega and identified as having great potential. She was just a child when Vladimir Lashin started coaching her. He carried himself like he was a god, like he was untouchable. He would treat you however you wanted, treat the parents however he wanted, and nothing would happen to him. One more time I will explain if you can understand. It was daily humiliation, yelling, threatening, intimidation, coaching methods that put me at risk on a regular basis. The whole gym was run through fear. You were scared, and you didn't want to do anything wrong because you don't want to get in trouble. Then you'd cry, and then they would get mad at you for crying because you're scared, and you're like a seven-year-old young girl who's being screamed at. And then you learn just not to cry, and you learn to hold in your emotions and not to show people what you're really feeling. I think I was only about 10. I had been dealing with sort of a nagging injury. He demanded that I do a, a double back tuck. I've never done this before. I don't think I can do it. And he just started yelling. You better do this. You have to do this. So I tried it, and I landed on my face. I was crying because I skinned my nose from sort of the tip of my nose to my forehead. He screamed at me and said, there is no crying allowed in this gym. What are you doing? Get out. And so I was kicked out of the gym. I got a hold of my mom and I said, you have to come pick me up. I just got kicked out of the gym. She apparently marched into the gym and said, how dare you yell at my daughter? He said, well, she cried. That's not allowed. And she said, she's a little girl. And he said, no, she's a gymnast. Physical and psychological abuse have become normalized, a normalized part of sport culture, a culture of control, a culture of psychological and physical abuse, a, a no pain, no gain kind of culture that has developed in sport organizations around the world. Everybody had these sort of expectations that I could go to the Olympics or could end up with a scholarship. I was living vicariously through her achievements. When she'd have a medal, I was in the stands and accepting compliments. It was better for, I want to say, a couple of months. And then a switch flipped and it came back. The abuse doesn't necessarily happen in private. Other coaches see it, other parents see it, other athletes see it. So when it's happening to you and you look around and nobody is admonishing the person who's treating you poorly, they are in a sense sanctioning the poor behavior. In the spring of 2001, 12-year-old Amelia was in Winnipeg to compete in her very first nationals competition. It was a big deal 
And so a day had been scheduled for novice-aged kids like her to spend with their parents. Without notice, her coach Vladimir Lashin told Amelia she would be training and not seeing her family. When she objected, she says he became enraged. He screamed at me from the dorms almost all the way to the doors of the training facility. How stupid are you? Do you care about this at all? This is nationals, get serious. And I had to do my warm up and I just remember circling the floor, just sobbing and seeing all of these coaches that I knew and they just, sorry. They did nothing. Coming up. I didn't know what to do. Like, I was horrified. Pushed beyond their limits. I remember thinking, I don't know that I'm going to survive this. When W5 continues. Welcome back. Abusive behavior from gymnastics coaches can have long-term effects on young athletes, but changing a culture that often values winning over mental health isn't easy. Here again is Rick Westhead. After two years in Burlington, gymnastics coach Dave Brubaker and his wife Liz Return with their star athlete, Mel Hunt, to Blue Water Gym in Sarnia. Her teammate, Abby Spadafora, had graduated high school and left for the University of Arizona. When you're removed from the situation, you start to see things differently. Silence is the abuser's best friend. People need to know what happened. Alali Picasso joined Blue Water's recreational program in the mid-1990s. She was 17 years old when the Brubakers returned from Burlington, and she says she witnessed things that troubled her deeply. There was one particular day that stood out. Mel came out of the change room, and she was in a tank top and um, panties, and she sat down, you know, with Dave on, on a blue box, and he was touching around her chest area and massaging around her groin area. I didn't know what to do. Like, I was horrified. You know, I tried not to be looking over to the side or anything, um, but I didn't tell him to stop. I didn't interject, and, like, I was, I was old enough to know what was happening. But it was just that sort of thing was just so normalized that it just, it was just another day in the gym. There were times because I was dealing with chronic back pain, Dave would have me come over to his house for treatment. And he had a massage table, so he would bring it up and set it out in the living room. And if he was ever massaging like my legs or the top of my thighs, his hands would slip underneath my underwear. And I just would freeze and look away. Um, yeah, I don't know. I've never said the word predator before. That's, I guess that, that is what he is. One of the things that a lot of people don't realize is that 
It didn't start off like that. It didn't start off so horrific. I mean, that was part of a grooming process that took months, if not years. Back in Coquitlam, BC, then 14-year-old Amelia Klein was dealing with a different, though also deeply troubling environment at her gym. Even though the Nationals' experience was so awful, I was having success. I was clearly doing well. We were training uh, 30 hours a week, so it was very, very intense, and very quickly I started experiencing injuries. I tore a muscle off of my spine and my back, which resulted in a large blood clot, and then I broke my hand in three places. And then I had my hamstring injury. It was very often that we would warm up doing sort of partner stretching. And we came to a part in the warm up where we would do a stretch where we would be standing uh, in front of Vladimir or Svetlana. And then they would grab one of our legs from behind and bring it up past our ears so that we would be doing kind of a standing split. And I said, I, I don't think we should do this. My hamstring feels tight. And he said something to the effect of, oh, you're just trying to get out of stretching. Physically turned me around and then grabbed my leg and yanked it. And when he did that, it snapped my hamstring off my pelvis and the tip of my pelvis went with it. So I had a full avulsion fracture of my pelvis and hamstring. The injury was so severe that doctors suggested Amelia stop all activity to rest and to heal. And of course, that didn't happen. I think I was back in the gym the next day after being diagnosed. Amelia should have been resting, but instead she was in the gym, forced by lashing, she says, to train through injury. Out of the blue, Vladimir turns to me and he says, go do your chinko. That's a type of vault where you do a round off onto the beat board and you do a back handspring onto the vault and then you push off with your hands and you do a rotation off the vault. So it's a, a pretty advanced vault and it's a very dangerous vault if you don't know what you're doing. I protested, I said, no, I, I can't do this. And he just started screaming. I've never done that before. I'm not even close to ready to do this vault. I remember thinking, I don't know that I'm going to survive this. I completely missed one of my hands off the vault. And it was... It was sort of a moment, you know, people say that, you know, your life flashes before your eyes when you have something like this. Sorry. <laughs> it was sort of like instead of seeing my life to date, I saw my future. And it was terrible. Even if I managed to survive this, not end up quadriplegic, if I kept training, 
One of those days, that's gonna happen. I landed on my head and um, realized that I hadn't paralyzed myself. I was still breathing. Vladimir was screaming immediately again, and this time he was screaming at me to get out. He was kicking me out. I was so finished that it's almost like it, it didn't register what he was saying. I, I just didn't care anymore. Amelia comes out, tears streaming down her face, her gym bag over her shoulder. She said, I'm done. Let's go. I was finished. And I was not a gymnast anymore. Injured, bullied, and exhausted after what she alleges was years of abuse, her promising career was over prematurely. If only she could have warned her younger self. You know, I think I feel sorry for her. I feel scared for her. It was, it was, um, you know, not reflected in these pictures are all, all the times that training went poorly and, um, Every day it was uh, a struggle to survive, really. Um, you know, I think there was um, a lot of potential. And I could have, I think I could have gone much further. So it's, um, it's a bit sad to see. Um, you know, what might have been. Yeah. Yelling and abusing athletes. <laughs> it's 20 years later as she's doing this that I, I realize the damage that it did. We allowed child abuse to happen and didn't confront it. Oh. Amelia wasn't the only one whose career would end prematurely at Omega. 10-year-old Cassidy was on the balance beam when everything changed. I was doing a skill I'd been working on for a while at that point, and I just was not getting it. It was a flip, so a back handspring with your legs together, connected directly into a back pike. And I was so off that I wouldn't even land on the balance beam. Like, I would just land completely off it. I was falling and falling and crying and crying, and I was terrified of doing this certain skill. Her coach, Svetlana, Vladimir's wife, had had enough and ordered her to complete the skill, but on a higher beam and without any padding. Probably took me 20, 25 minutes to be brave enough to actually do it. I'm standing up on the beam, of course, tears pouring down my face. My heart is pounding. It was like slow motion, it was weird. I have it like burned into my head forever now. I landed on the beam and I twisted and my foot stayed in the same spot. And as I twisted, I heard my bones snap. Then I fell off the beam and I see Svetlana watching me. And she tells me, get up and do it again. And at that point, I can't get up. 
And then she just leaves me. And I'm left there for probably a good 45 minutes to an hour. No ice, no help, no splint, no nothing. My teeth were chattering and I had goosebumps and I was saying like, I'm so cold, I'm so cold. Not knowing at the time, like I didn't know that meant I was going into shock and I was not getting help from anybody. So I was in the hospital for about three days. Then I was in a wheelchair, not weight-bearing for three months. And then I was in a cast for almost six months. It was devastating. I made the decision that I'm going to be done now. In the wake of Cassidy's accident at the Omega Gymnastics Club in Coquitlam, her parents sued the Lashins for negligence. I'm thankful that my parents were brave enough to stand up to them. Cassidy's family received a settlement from the Lashins, who paid them $105,000. There's a culture that allows this in sports, and this is the culture that we need to change in sports. This is destroying individuals' potential, destroying their, their confidence, their mental health, their well-being. No, this is not the recipe for success. Coming up. It's just this group of little girls that seem to be under attack. Bearing the scars and reliving the horrors. For a while, I just buried it, and then the nightmares started happening. When W5 continues. For a while, I just buried it and didn't really talk about it. I was out of the gym, I moved on, I was in uh, London at school. And then the nightmares started happening. I dream that I'm back under his control. Years, even decades later, the trauma from their experiences at Blue Water Gym in Sarnia still haunt Mel Hunt and Abby Spadafora. I don't sleep. I just have nightmares. I panic attacks constantly. I was coaching this past year in cheer, and I loved it. But I would start to have nightmares of me coaching my team, and I couldn't protect them. Or I'd be back in the gym, and I couldn't protect anyone. It's much the same for former Coquitlam BC gymnasts Amelia Klein and Cassidy Jones. Even now, 20 years later, if something triggers something, I'll have a night full of nightmares. They seem to always feature Vladimir and something to do with vault. Often it will be a situation where I'm falling and hearing screaming again and having that same fear of ending up paralyzed or, or dead. I had my reoccurring dream last night. I usually get it every few months, and I had it last night. I'm in the gym as a kid, but kind of with the knowledge that I have now. And Vladimir's yelling at me, and I'm yelling back, which I never did as a kid. I never yelled at him. But I'm yelling back, and the overwhelming sensation that I have is that I can't yell loud enough. When I was a kid, I felt like I didn't have a voice with him, and I felt like I wasn't allowed to stand up for myself, which you weren't allowed to. Turn by shoulder backwards. Which turn is for your good? Right or left? 
I don't think that abuse in the sport could thrive to the extent that it has if there weren't enablers in the system. People turning a blind eye. The accountability, the oversight, it's all missing. It's just this group of little girls that seem to be under attack in this sport. And I just wouldn't recommend gymnastics for a kid until there are big changes. The number of athletes who have sat silent for a long, long time about their experience with no clear path to a reporting mechanism or a real trust in the process, those stories have gone underground. And that's what happened in Sarnia with the Blue Water Gym and Coach Dave Brubaker. I saw things and I suspected things. I just felt like it wasn't my story to tell. It took 15 years for Alali to come to terms with what she witnessed at Blue Water. But in 2017, she was inspired to take action by the Me Too movement. I said, you know, should I call the police? Like, it's been a long time, and I feel like this is, this is something that I need to speak up about. So I called the Ontario Police Sarnia District. Alali's phone call that day led to Brubaker's arrest. Brubaker was charged with two counts of sexual abuse related to Mel. But days before the trial was set to begin in October 2018, it was revealed that the investigating officer was related to Mel by marriage. And in large part because of that, Brubaker was acquitted. However, in her decision, the judge made a point of praising Mel, describing her testimony as forthright, sincere, and genuine. At the conclusion of the criminal trial, Gymnastics Canada began its own investigation. Our intent is to properly investigate whether or not there has been a, a violation of our code of conduct and ethics policies. Eleven women came forward with allegations of abuse against Brubaker. A discipline committee found 54 of their allegations credible. Among them, that Brubaker had caused an athlete to land on her head during training that he was inappropriately affectionate with an athlete and had told her he wanted to touch her, and that he engaged in inappropriate massaging with an athlete, including sliding his hand under her underwear. Brubaker was banned for life from coaching gymnastics in Canada. Vindication for Mel and Abby and the other athletes. There's a slowly growing awareness that issues like neglect, bullying, psychological abuse, and physical abuse are a problem. I think the world's much more ready to hear now that something can be done about this. It's not a healthy culture that we've established around high-performance sport in Canada. I don't think sport alone can build their own systems to police their own behavior. The culture, everything, it's got to change. Everything has to change, bottom up, top down. In an effort to bring on that kind of widespread change, Emilia is attempting a new and potentially groundbreaking approach. I am a former elite national gymnast and I am the lead plaintiff in the class action that was filed this morning. In May 2022, she launched a class action lawsuit against Gymnastics Canada and provincial gymnastics bodies across the country, 
we're really trying to hold these institutions accountable and to send a message that uh, you will not be able to allow these things to continue without being held liable for them. The lawsuit details abusive conduct perpetrated by coaches Vladimir and Svetlana Lashin that Amelia alleges she and other gymnasts endured almost daily. But the lawsuit also goes well beyond the Omega gym. It alleges systemic negligence, that gymnasts across the country were subjected to a wide array of abuse, sexual, physical, psychological. Also, that Gymnastics Canada and the provincial bodies became desensitized to the abuse, turned a blind eye to the abuse, and did not respond appropriately and act on complaints when reported. I am daily getting messages from gymnasts, from parents, saying, this happened to my child, or this happened to me. There seems to be no end to the number of people coming forward. And that is both horrifying, but also encouraging in that people are starting to find support with each other. They're starting to find their voices. No one more so than Mel. In 2017, when Brubaker was arrested and the criminal charges were first laid, the courts had protected her identity and the identities of the other gymnasts. But by the spring of 2022, after Brubaker received his lifetime ban, she asked to have the publication ban lifted so she could tell her story. I feel a bit nervous because today is the day I'm going to post my um, victim impact statement. I would like to start by informing everyone that it has been five long years since I came forward with the truth about the abuse that took place at the hands of my coaches. I was so ready to do this at the time that the trial was all happening. So it's kind of been sitting there simmering and I'm more than ready. It's time to step up and acknowledge the hundreds of gymnasts speaking out about the sport's toxic culture. I'm here to protect, support, and fight for the young gymnasts who are, aren't being heard. I hear you and I believe you. It's what happened to me and I don't have to be silenced anymore. When I first started counseling, one of the first journal entries I did was how I don't want to have a kid. And it was because I didn't want to have a kid like me. I felt like it was my fault that all this happened because I was too much of a people pleaser, that I put my Olympic dream above my own health and safety. And I realized that I do want kids and that it wasn't my fault for what Dave did to me. I wish you more ups than downs. It's changed me for the rest of my life in bad ways. I'll never move on from it. It's not something that just goes away. I'm petrified that this is gonna happen to my kids. So it's something I will live with for the rest of my life. I just can continue to try to heal and pray to God that I can protect more kids. Because at the end of the day, that's what, that's what we were. We were children. been listening to CTV's W5 with Avery Haynes. 